Please turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. And as you do that, I want to actually want to take a moment on behalf of the entire pastoral team to express my appreciation, our appreciation for a particular group of people who work really hard behind the scenes. And that group is the, the administrative staff and the facility staff uh, of the church. I'm going to, in just a moment, have them stand. I'll let you know when to applaud. Uh, but what you might not know is that we have three organizations here at the church. We have Sovereign Grace Churches, which is uh, the, the family of churches, the denomination that we are a part of, um, and administrative workers there. We have Covenant Mercies, and we have Covenant Fellowship Church here. And though these are three distinct uh, ministries, we function together in partnership and it is the administrative and facility staff that makes ministry possible. Um, all of the things that were just announced and everything that we do as a church and including this Sunday gathering would not be possible without the help of those who serve administratively and in facilities. And so if, and here's what I, what I want to do, and again, hold your applause, because I want to say a few more things. If you work in uh, facilities or admin role, this is full-time or part-time. If you're not sure if you, you're included, you're probably included. Uh, full-time or part-time facilities or admin staff for Sovereign Grace, Covenant Mercies, or Covenant Fellowship. Can you please stand? so that we can take a look at you. Please stand, yes, thank you. Good, thank you. What I want to, what I want to say, here's what, here's what I so love, and just stay, stay standing for a second if you can. What I'm very aware of is that, that my service role is one that is, is public, right? I'm in front of all of you and you know how I'm serving. The thing that so affects me about how these brothers and sisters serve is that they are regularly serving behind the scenes. And they are laying down their lives in sacrificial service and they serve with joy and they serve with humility and they serve in, in unity. It's one of the great joys of my life and I want each one of you know to be able to serve uh, with you uh, as a part of this, this team. We thank God for you. So let's express our appreciation for these brothers and sisters. Philippians chapter 2, we are continuing our study of this book of Philippians. We come now to verse 12, and our sermon title is How to Shine in a Dark World. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, this is God's holy and authoritative word. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things 
without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. May God bless the preaching of his word. The telescope was invented in the year 1608 by a Dutch eyeglass maker. It was then a year later that Galileo designed one of his own, and he was the first, we are told, to, to point the telescope toward the sky. And as he did so, Galileo was able to see craters on the moon. He was able to see the rings of Saturn. He was able to see the Milky Way with all of its stars. Did you know the Bible has something to say about stars? Uh, they appear there in the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1 where we are told that God is the one who put stars in the sky. The Lord later promised to Abraham that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars. In the book of Psalms, the psalmist praises God because God counts the stars and he gives every one of them a name and therefore he is to be praised for his greatness. The birth of Christ is marked by a bright star and when he returns, Jesus said that stars will lose their brightness and fall from the sky. Jesus himself is described in the final chapter of the Bible as the bright morning star. We also learn in Scripture that the people whom God has redeemed, you and I, the people of Christ, are intended to shine like stars. Daniel chapter 12 verse 3 says that those who receive everlasting life will shine like the brightness of the sky above. And it says that those who turn many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever and ever. That language appears in Daniel 12. And in our text, Paul uses this same imagery to describe the presence of the people of God in the world. All the world is a night sky and the people of Christ are rescued in order to be light in the midst of the darkness. We dwell in an unbelieving world that is increasingly hostile to the truth. Uh, many have observed that the days seem to grow darker and darker every year. And our calling as a community, our call, the call of God upon Covenant Fellowship Church, is to be a community of believers who are faithfully shining as lights into the darkness of this world. 
the problem is that not all Christians are shining as we ought. Um, too often, we become just like the world around us and fail to be distinct from the world, therefore failing to shine as we ought. Or, and this is certainly something that we see today, Christians become primarily concerned about and consumed with how to change the darkness of the world. We talk all about the darkness, we describe the darkness, we rail against the darkness. Well, all of that is relatively easy, and there's nothing too surprising about a crooked and twisted generation acting in ways that are crooked and twisted. The challenge, and this is the great challenge for us, is to be distinct from the darkness and to refuse to complain in the midst of the darkness. The concern of the New Testament is not so much how to stop the darkness from being dark, but how to shine, how to be distinct in the midst of that darkness. How do we shine in a dark world? And here in Philippians chapter two, what Paul has come down from the mountaintop of the humiliation and exaltation of Christ, as we saw last week, the one to whom every knee will bow, every tongue will confess his lordship, there in verses nine through 11, to the glory of God the Father, then immediately following that, now he says, therefore, because every knee will bow, because every tongue will confess, because of this great humiliation and exaltation of this glorious Savior, therefore, this Christ who is Lord <laughs> makes a difference in our lives. Not just praising him when we gather, but in how we live throughout the week. Therefore, he says. And then these practical instructions follow, summarizing what it means to be the people of Christ. And it may surprise us, you know, this declaration of the lordship of Christ, every knee will bow. What, is, what follows the therefore? Well, it may surprise us. One commentator uh, I came across this, says that Paul's message in verses 12 through 18 is this. Keep obeying, don't grumble. Your neighbors are a crooked generation. I may be executed soon. And by the way, through it all, I am rejoicing and you should too. Like that sums it up perfectly, you know. Amen, that's it. That's the sermon right there, summarized in full. Here are three ways. Let's take a closer look at three ways that we can shine in a dark world, what it means for our own lives individually and corporately as the people of Christ. First, strive after godliness. This is verses 12 through 14. Strive after godliness. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed. Note there, affection, and commendation. My beloved, as you have always obeyed. That's what Christian leadership looks like. I love you and I see God's grace in you. As you have always obeyed. Not perfectly, but he says clearly your obedience is a way of life. You value the application of truth to your daily living. And so it is with this church family. And this is the reason that you are beloved to us and that we as pastors thank God that you are committed to obedience. 
Therefore, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation. In other words, you have received salvation as a gift of free grace in Christ. And now, because you have salvation, you must work out that salvation. You must express that salvation in practical ways. Show your salvation in your conduct. Give yourself to this work of demonstrating the fruit of your salvation. Apply yourself to this work. Why? Because no one drifts towards godliness. It doesn't happen naturally. It requires work. It requires intentional pursuit. It requires obedience to the truth. Just as Jesus, our Savior, became obedient to the point of death, verse 8, we must value obedience to God. His desire for his people is that we would always be a people who are pressing on in maturity, who are pressing on in Christ-likeness. And we do so with, with fear and trembling. Now that language is language that can easily be misunderstood. It, it is, this trembling is not terror, but it is it is fear and trembling. It is, it is the joyful awe and wonder of living all of life in, in God's presence, in the sight of an omniscient God. This is, this is the fear of the Lord, which is an attractive fear, and when understood, a fear that drives us closer to the Lord and not away from Him. But we are to work out our salvation with seriousness, with fear and with trembling. And it needs to be emphasized that, that all of this is our responsibility in striving after godliness. This command, these commands come to us. The call to obedience. The call to working out our salvation. That working out of our salvation, as it's given there in the text, is not something that someone else does. It's not something that God does. You, Christian, work out your salvation and do so with fear and trembling. There are responsibilities that come to us in the Christian life as those who are the recipients of free salvation. We work not to be saved, but we work because we have been saved by the free grace of God. So we are working. At the same time, notice, <laughs> gloriously, we're not the only ones working. This entire passage, these verses, verses 12 through 14, is one of the clearest and most concise explanations in all of Scripture of God's work and our work in our spiritual transformation. Too often we think either everything depends upon me, everything depends upon my effort, or we, we minimize our activity. Um, let go and let God. Or, or you see this, Christians treating effort uh, as a bad word. Uh, Christians treating good works in a way that are neglected. What we see here is that we are to work because God works in us. If there may be, and I'm sure this is true for many of us, if you are aware, even earlier in this service, we reflect on our lives, we consider where we have fallen short of the obedience that God calls us to. If you know you're falling short in obedience, 
or if there's some area of your life, it could even be a long-standing area where you feel powerless to change. You feel powerless to grow. If you've grown discouraged and weary in the Christian life and in the, the pursuit of, of godliness and growth, verse 13 is really good news today. Verse 13 is God's word to you that he desires to press upon your heart today that you might live in the joy of knowing that there is one who is at work in you. That he has not left you to yourself. God has not left you to your own resources. Verse 13 is a reminder of the activity and power of God himself at work in our lives. Your growth, and every one of us need to hear this, your growth does not depend primarily upon your resources or your resilience. It depends primarily on God. There is no sentence that is more likely to encourage us and transform us in our pursuit of godliness than this truth. It is God who works in you. You're not alone. God is the great worker. Do you believe that today? Do you believe that as in that area of besetting sin, in that area that you desire to grow, you say, I feel stuck. God comes to you today and reminds you, he is at work in you. You say, I feel like I'm never going to change. God says, I am at work in you. He brings a message of hope that change is possible because it doesn't depend on our power and our resources, but on the power and resources of a mighty God who is in the business of changing lives for his glory. He works in you. What if I fail again? He works in you. He has not left us to ourselves. This same God who raised Jesus from the dead and exalted him to the highest place, this God is actively exerting his divine energy in your life toward the purposes of your spiritual transformation. In other words, his work is not just a thing of the past. He, he not only has worked in you in the past, he is presently working in you. Even if you don't feel like he is, even if you are unaware of where he is working, he is working in you. How? The text says he is, he is creating both the desire and the power to change. Have you ever thought about this? Just the, the desire that you have. You say, I'm not content. I want to grow. I want to be more godly. I don't want to love this sin. What is that? It's a desire for change. How did that get there? God worked it in your life. And if there's some area where you've grown complacent in sin, pray to the Lord even now that he would give you a greater desire for change. He does that. He loves to change our hearts. He is at work in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So he's increasing our desire and he is giving us the power to, to exert ourselves Toward the goal of change. I love, you know, every service we end with, with a benediction, a good word spoken over the people. And one that we often use are those glorious words in Hebrews 13, 21, that reminds us that he will equip you with everything good that you may do his will. And that he will work in us that which is pleasing in his sight. That's what God is doing. 
And therefore, we strive after godliness and we do so, yes, we work, we do so because God is working in us. And we do so with an eye to his ongoing work in our lives, that he is faithful, that he is more committed to our growth and transformation than we will ever be, that he is faithful. That's first, strive after godliness, verses 12 through 14. Second, and this is verses 14 through 16, stop your grumbling. Strive after godliness. Second, stop your grumbling. Now, verse 14 gives two comprehensive prohibitions. They are comprehensive because this is the manner we are told that we are to do all things. Okay, so it's not do some things in this particular way. We are to do all things. It is comprehensive. And they are prohibitions because we are to do all things without these two qualities. The the avoidance of these two behaviors is what makes us, the text says, blameless and innocent. Not that we are sinless. We never reach that point in this world, but that you are mature, that you are above reproach, that, that people cannot find fault with you. The avoidance of these two behaviors is what makes the people of God shine as lights in the world. What are these two sins that are so comprehensively prohibited that make followers of Christ so profoundly and radically different? from the world around us, two of them, and you see them there, grumbling and disputing. Do all things without grumbling and disputing. Now, during COVID, do you know what the darkness did? A lot of grumbling, a lot of disputing. In engaging politics today, do you know what the world, the darkness does? A lot of grumbling, a lot of disputing. This is what characterizes the darkness of this world. And in fact, both of these words are drawn directly from the language of Israel in the wilderness. God redeemed his people. He brought them out of slavery in Egypt just as he has redeemed us in Christ. Just as he has delivered us from sin and death. But the salvation that should have been followed by gratitude was instead followed by grumbling. Numbers 11 verse 1 says, The people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. This was the people of God of old. They complained about their circumstances. They complained about the lack of provision. They complained about the authority that God placed in their lives. Numbers 14, verse 2, and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. They committed this great sin of grumbling and complaining in their hearts and in their words. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, we are told, and many were struck dead. And this is to teach us today that that grumbling and disputing are not little sins. They, they, are, they are sins which God takes seriously. Sins that he calls his people away from. Paul uses uh, 
the, the language of Deuteronomy 32 as well in this passage. Deuteronomy 32 verse 5 is where Moses says of the Israelites, they have dealt corruptly with the Lord. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. There's a good bit of the terminology there that Paul is drawing from. He's saying they failed to shine. They themselves became a, a crooked and twisted generation. And it was because of their grumbling and disputing. The grumbler goes through life saying, look at how bad things are. The disputer goes through life saying, look at all the ways you are wrong and I am right. Uh, to grumble is when our hearts complain about God's dealings with us. When we complain about his rule in the world. It is when, it's when contentment and thanksgiving are replaced, as is so easily the case, with a negative outlook, with a critical spirit, with a murmuring heart, and with unthankful speech. Every one of us <laughs> do all things without grumbling is the challenge. I, here's what this looks like for me. I sometimes find myself in, in a situation, and it happens especially this time of the year, when it is a beautiful, sunny Saturday at the end of a busy week, and I'm needing to devote Saturday to preparing a sermon for the next day. And inevitably, it appears that all the world is having fun except for me. And I'm sure you can relate to this in some way in your own life. It's just, there is a party at every house. And, and people are dancing and laughing. And the birds are chirping. And children are riding ponies. And friends and family are wanting to hang out with me. Couples are on dates. Love is in the air. And, and God, through the gracious work of his spirit, convicts me of grumbling. Do all things without grumbling. The fact that we are to do all things without grumbling, just let that command sit on you afresh today. It has implications for how we talk about busyness. It has implications for how we talk about finances and trials and relationships and traffic and email and more. It has implications for our tone in how we speak about these things. Is there an area of your life that you need to repent of your grumbling against the Lord? If so, go to Christ, confess your sin, experience once again the cleansing mercy and the empowering grace that is there in Christ Jesus. Do all things without grumbling. And then there's this other word, disputing. Or arguing. This refers to, to quarreling, to criticizing, to debating in ways that are ungodly and divisive. It's when we provoke others. It's when we become argumentative and combative, eager for verbal conflict. This is, of course, the sort of thing that we see a lot of on social media. There is disputing and arguing throughout the darkness of this world. What, here's the striking thing about this passage and what is emphasized. It's the absence of complaining and arguing 
that is intended by God to be the quality that causes us to shine as lights in the world. In other words, what makes the church different? What makes the people of Christ different? Well, they're doing things without grumbling and without disputing. And the reason for that contrast is precisely because these are the things that so blatantly and obviously mark the world. Listen to the cultural voices. Listen to the the political commentators on the right and on the left. And this is what they have in common. All of the grumbling, all of the disputing, all of the attacking others, all of the negative tone, all of the outrage, that is expected of the world. That is expected of the darkness. It is entirely unacceptable for the Christian. We are called to something different. This is a glorious description of our witness in the world. We Verse 16, we're holding fast to the word of life. So there is something that we are tenaciously holding on to. We are boldly speaking the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are courageously spreading the good news of this Savior who was crucified and rose for sinners. Hold fast to the word of life and we refuse to grumble. We refuse to dispute. Our witness in the world hangs in no small part upon how we live. The refusal to join in the grumblers and the disputers and to instead rather adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ through our thankfulness, through our love, through our good works. Only then do we shine as lights in the world. And I thank God to belong to a church community that is marked precisely by these things the peace and the unity that we enjoy, the thankfulness that God has placed into our hearts. It's a testimony to the power of his grace and it has caused us and will cause us to continue to shine as lights in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Third and last point, sacrifice with gladness. How do we shine as Stars, we strive after godliness, we stop our grumbling, and we sacrifice with gladness. This is verses 17 and 18. Paul says here, and you remember he's writing in prison, and you remember he is contemplating the the potential of his impending death. He says, even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. There is a sacrifice that results in gospel happiness, that results in gladness and rejoicing. Paul here is using a an illustration, he's using a metaphor drawn from the Old Testament and from, from, from common religious practice uh, at the time, which is the drink offering. In Numbers 28, it explains the daily offerings of the Israelites. There was not only the burnt offering, but it says in Numbers 28, in the holy place, you shall pour out a drink offering of strong drink to the Lord. Paul's using that, that phrase, that same imagery, poured out as a drink offering. And he uses this as a, as a description of dying. He has reached the end of his life. He 
has reached that day where his strength is failing. The drink offering. It's in fact the same uh, imagery. The drink offering is mentioned by Paul in 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 and 7, where he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. He looks at death itself. He looks at all of the suffering that he was currently experiencing imprisonment and in life. And he says it is a sacrifice to the Lord that will result in gladness and rejoicing. I was, one of the things that God brought to mind this morning, even as we were singing, about, about steadfastness and God's presence with us in the midst of suffering, is the number of dear saints and families and individuals that we presently have in our church family who are enduring great suffering and loss and yet who are trusting the Lord through it all. Who even this morning were singing, all my life you have been faithful. All my life you have been so, so good. You want to know one of the main ways that we shine as lights in the darkness? By that. When, when hardship, when trials, when suffering comes into your life, rather than saying, curse God and die, you say, God, I trust in your faithfulness. I trust in your goodness. And I want my steadfastness in the midst of suffering to be a sacrifice of praise to the Lord. I want it to be a part of the offering that I am bringing to him. Though you slay me, yet I will trust in you. I will worship the God who has always been faithful, the God who has never failed me. Part of the sacrifice of the Christian life is the call to suffering that we must endure. And yet even this suffering is a part of the sacrifice that we offer with joy and with gladness. This drink offering, Paul says, is poured out upon another sacrifice. So there's his sacrifice of his impending death, poured out upon a sacrifice that is already on the altar, which he says is their sacrificial living. Poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. So in other words, here we have a description of a shared sacrificial offering. There is no Christian who is not bringing the sacrificial offering. For one, it involves death. For another, it involves life. But all are involved in the bringing of this sacrificial offering. Also, notice that the main sacrifice on the altar belongs to the Christians in Philippi. Paul says his is the drink offering that is poured on top of theirs. So not only is Paul sacrificing and serving through his imprisonment and possible death, they, he realizes... And calls attention to this fact that they are sacrificing and serving. How? Through their support. Through their partnership. Through their prayers. Through the sacrifices that they are making for the gospel. The whole of the Christian life is a sacrificial offering to the Lord. Resulting in greater joy in the Lord. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 12 verse 1. I appeal to you therefore brothers... By the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is introduction to the Christian life. 
you present your body, all that you are, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, meaning you hold nothing back. Some of you are, are looking to live one life in the world, one life for the Lord. You're holding something back. The call of Christ upon you is to live your life as a living sacrifice offered to the Lord. We offer our bodies, we offer our time, we offer our money, our gifts, all of it as a living sacrifice to the Lord. Walter Hansen in his commentary says, not the absence of suffering, but the presence of sacrifice inspired by faith in Christ generated Paul's joy. So what is it that generates Paul's joy? How is it that he's experiencing such gospel happiness? Well, it's not the absence of suffering. It is the presence of sacrifice inspired by faith in Christ. He sees a church that is rejoicing in the opportunity to express their faith through sacrifice. It is, it's the joy of serving. It is the joy of giving. It is the joy of obeying. It's the joy of living the whole life of faith, lived to the glory of God. There is, I want to mention this, there's a very particular sacrifice that's mentioned in chapter 4, verse 18. This same imagery is used, and we'll get there later when we get to chapter 4. Uh, and that is the, the sacrificial offering of financial giving. It's actually no small part of the reason that Paul was writing this letter. He says he received from Epaphroditus, chapter 4, verse 18, the gifts you sent. And then here's how to think about giving. A fragrant offering, an acceptable, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. You are a church covenant fellowship that excels in the grace of giving. I know what no one gives, but I know that you are a generous church. And the Lord sees your giving as a fragrant offering, as a sacrifice acceptable to the Lord. I have always believed that as a matter of Christian faithfulness, Christians ought to give at least 10% of our income to the work of the local church that we belong to. I did that before I was a pastor. Megan and I have done this for over 20 years, and we have experienced together the joy of sacrifice. Um, whenever we talk about giving, as a, as a church, it's never a matter, and so many people can misunderstand this, it's not a matter of what leaders want from you, it's a matter of what God has for you. In other words, the eagerness of God to bless, and the reason that I, do I want people to give? Yes, absolutely. What's the main reason? So that they can experience the blessing that God has for those who live sacrificially and offer up this praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. Sometimes I, I have this experience. Sometimes I sit down with Megan and, and we look uh, at our finances and we look at what we give to the church. I know there are many others who are far more sacrificial. Uh, we believe that, that, training wheels, that, that the training wheels of giving is the 10% of giving. So it's always been our practice to move beyond the training wheels. So we sit there, and sometimes I have this thought. You know, our lives could be a bit different if we didn't give what we do. Just, uh, and as you give, just consider that. 
Consider the sacrifice of giving. But then we say, yes, but we would not be better off because we would not trade the adventure of sacrificial giving for anything in the world. And many throughout the history of this church and in the church to this day can say the same. That part of the, the sacrifice, or well, where have you experienced the sacrifice of the Christian life? I think there are many who would say, though we have suffered little, that one way we have experienced the sacrifice, the offering, is through our giving. The fragrant offering given to the Lord. And what this text says, and what God desires to promise us, is that there is joy in the offering. And I'm not just talking about finances. Talk about any area of the Christian life. There is joy in the offering. So how are you serving? How are you sacrificing? How are you giving? How are you praying? How are you obeying? You see, the point of verse 18, Paul mentions his own joy and gladness. But then in verse 18, he encourages these same things in them, even as they sacrifice. The point of verse 18 is that there is more gospel happiness there is more gladness and rejoicing waiting to be experienced as we offer up the whole of our lives as living sacrifices to the Lord. Sacrificial living produces lasting joy. And through this lifestyle, devoted entirely to the Lord, we testify to the grace that has changed us and we worship him with our lives and we shine as stars in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. I'd like to ask the band to return as I close. Church family, this is the call of God upon us. And I believe that God is calling us to continue to shine as stars. And even to shine as stars more brightly than ever before. One of the highlights of my Easter last week was hearing from our brother in Christ, Romeo, sharing the story of how God brought him out of the darkness and into the light. He shared he used to be an atheist, sowing seeds of doubt in others, and now he has been rescued by the grace of God, and now he is shining like a star. I see that as just one example of what God is doing. One example of the many of how God is using the shining of this congregation. The witness of his people shining into the darkness, changing more and more lives for his glory. So church, let us continue by the grace of God this year and for years to come to shine in the darkness. Let's strive after godliness. Let's stop our grumbling and let's sacrifice with gladness. Christ has made the ultimate sacrifice in his death and he is worthy of the sacrificial offering of the whole of our lives. Let's stand and sing to the Lord.